morning and welcome everybody. You're listening to The Breakfast Show on Faith FM 87.6, 87.8 or 88 right across Australia, right across the Faith FM network, wherever you are, positively different radio in this morning and you are with Lyle and... And you're with Darren this morning. Darren, welcome yes, to the Yes, good show. morning. It's great to be here on radio this morning. Um, yes, I got the request last night. I'm here filling in for Lawson. Yes, and we are super glad that you are here seeing as... Uh, well, you had some tests yesterday. Yes, a bit of a COVID scare where I am. Because my wife works at um, Morrisette High School, I was seen as possibly um, subject to COVID, so I had to go and get a test. Okay, so good to know that uh, you're all clear. So that's uh, something definitely to be thankful for this morning. Uh, I have something that I'm thankful for this morning. You're, what are you thankful for? I am super thankful for Producer Shell. Yes, why? I, I'm, I know I, she's I, your wife. I but... am married to that beautiful woman, and it is her birthday today. Happy birthday to Producer Shell. And to celebrate her birthday this morning, she's going to play all of her favourite songs on the radio. So normally she picks songs that go along with the theme of what we're talking about. Today she's just uh, she's going to just be picking her favourites and telling us all about them and why they are her favourites. So go, Producer Shell. Yes, yes, yes. Anything else that you're thankful for this morning? Uh, spring okay. is coming. Spring? Oh, signs yes, of spring. yes. Can, is, is there any buds, buds on the tree outside? Let me yes, see. Yes, at I, my house there is. At your house there's buds because you've got an orchard. Yes, 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 spring is coming. I can see signs of, um, signs of um, blossom coming on my stone fruit. Daffodils are flowering. It tells me that Aslan, if you know C.S. Lewis, is on the move. Yeah, yeah <laughs> that's right. It's the best time of year. It always makes me happy. Um, it's it's always uh it's it's always a good time of year when when the weather starts to get warmer. And it's like you know the signs are there that winter will soon be gone. You're listening to the Breakfast Show podcast on Faith FM, positively different. Darren, tell us some positively different news this morning. And yes, it was hard to find positive news today. <laughs> was, wasn't it? <laughs> I was scanning through all my news feeds, things like that, saying, what is there? It's and nothing but lockdown. Everything. Lockdown, 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 COVID, COVID, COVID. Where's the good news? And I found some. Fantastic. What have you got well, for us? Well, it could be good news or it could be not so good news. Bring how you read it. But, <laughs> okay. but here we go. Lyle, are you happy... With your body. Now, that's a bit of a personal question. Body satisfaction, are you happy? Okay, so when it comes to body satisfaction with me, it's not so much whether I'm happy or sad with my body. It's uh, kind of a a bit of a sad lack of um, really giving two hoots. Um, it's just my body is my body. and But, yeah, I'm, I am not concerned with my body. Yes, you, you might be – are you getting closer to 60? Um. Well, you know, <laughs> you're above fifty. <laughs> got eleven years to go. Yeah, eleven well, years to go. Okay. Well, I'm I'm over there. I'm sort of not not quite halfway to sixty, like between fifty and sixty, but I'm just over 50, 52, okay. 53. Yep. So, yep. 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 I'm yep. getting there too. Um, but um, new research coming out today says that men and women are happiest with their bodies after reaching the age of sixty. A study has found. Is that good news or bad news? Well, I think it's got to be good news because I think body satisfaction is an important thing. What I see with the whole body satisfaction issue is it's not. A, it should not be about whether we like the way our body looks. We should like the way our body feels. In other words, we should be aiming for good health first and foremost as our greatest priority above good looks. Now, often good health is going to be associated with 
what society sees as being better looks as well. And, you know, staying fit is going to produce a body that, you know, looks better within the culture that we live in today. Uh, and, and that's a good thing. It's good to stay fit. It's important to be healthy. So, yeah, yeah. My, my aim is to have a healthy body and whatever it looks like, it looks like. I think you might be um, read the research. Oh, um, really? It's backing up what you just said. Oh, there you go. It says satisfaction with size, shape and appearance gradually increases as people age, with our latter years characterised by the highest levels of self-assurance, according to data from more than 15,000 people in the study. Whilst women aged between 19 and 24 were prone to be very unhappy with their bodies, they were much more content with how they looked when they reached 60. Contentedness is a good thing to have. It's, it's yeah. very important. I think when we're, I think when we're young, you know, when we're in our twenties, when it, when we when we are in our twenties and we are going through that stage where we are looking for a life partner, we get more insecure about these kinds of things. That's right. That's right. And um, I think society has a bit to answer for because they try and project this perfect image, which is often photoshopped, airbrushed, and whatever there's else. No resemblance to reality whatsoever at all. That's right. I've seen photos of some women and, and men who um, here's their on-camera shot and here's their off-camera shot and very, very different. So Yes. And, and when you see that, you recognise, you realise that basically anyone out there can be a professional model. That's right. You've just got to have a good Photoshop artist. That's right. Photoshop artist and a makeup artist and you're there. It really comes down to attitude more than anything else. You've got to have the attitude of a model. You've got to have the confidence of a model. And it seems that most of us are achieving that confidence by the age of 60. So maybe at 60, Darren, we can all go out and become models again. That's, well, that's what they're saying in the study is that by the time you're 60, I don't know if you don't care anymore <laughs> or, or whatever. But, yeah, it's also saying, what we said earlier, Lyle, um, that um, most people in the 60s are not so much worried about their looks but how their body functions. Is their body still right. functioning correctly and everything working? That that brings satisfaction. And if only we had that attitude when we were 20, because when we're 20, you know, you, you feel like you're 10 feet tall and bulletproof. That's and right. like this body will last forever. But if we started looking after it when we were 20, like we look after it when we're 60, maybe we'd still be going at 100. That's right. Well, that's that's that. Some studies say that that is what happens if you look after your body at twenty. You're going to live to about a hundred, and and still have all your faculties intact. Nice, nice. I think this is good news, and I think it's good research. It's a message that we need to get out to our younger people uh, to be satisfied with the body that they have provided is healthy, and only be unsatisfied with poor health. Yeah, Don't when, be undersatisfied with a poor appearance or what you might think is poor appearance, but be unsatisfied with poor health. I would agree with that. And, um, yeah, I think that for me, I'm now, as I said, 53, and um, some of the yellow lights are starting to come on in the car saying, check your engine. <laughs> yes, that's uh, what, it happens, <laughs> doesn't it? I was down at my doctor the other day, and he's like, oh, you're turning 50 next year. We're going to check for this and this and this and this. We're going to check for bowel cancer. And yeah, I'm there thinking, free kit what, comes out. What, what, yeah, all kinds of... Uh, all kind of the free kit comes out and it's like, whoa, really? Seriously? Yeah, the yellow lights. But maybe... What's Thankfully this, not red ones yet. This study may be saying that life does not necessarily begin, let's like, say, at 40. Maybe it begins at 60 when you're most happy with how you look and how you function. Yep, absolutely. So many people avoid the beach when they are in their 20s because they're unhappy about it. Well, once you hit your 60s... <laughs> just, just go. Yeah, just go to the beach and have fun and relax and enjoy all of the beautiful things that God has created. Yep, in the end, says to me, um, 
If you want to live a long and healthy and happy life, variety and balance and moderation are those things that get you there. Fantastic stuff. You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM, positively different. Uh, we've got a text message coming here through from Raphael. He says, considering my age, I'm very happy with my body. Um, I think this guy is in, possibly in that 60s age bracket there, maybe? Yes, I know. <laughs> um, that, 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 that are happy with their body? It's a, matter of, it's a matter of mind over matter. I just look in the mirror and see what I want to see. Oh, I there like that. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I, I help it along. Okay, so this guy, my, guy's my hero. I help it along by walking two to three hours per day. Two to three hours. How many kilometres is that? I don't know, but that is a fantastic effort and uh, life goals right there. Yeah, Hans Deal, who I admire, he's a well-known health person around the world, said, walk holes into the soles of your shoes, not into the tyres <laughs> of your car. <laughs> yes, nice. Ooh, unfortunately, the tyres of my car, yeah, let's not go there. <laughs> All right, let's talk a bit about a little bit more serious news this morning. And Brian Houston, of course, is front and centre in the news this morning, uh, being taken up on criminal charges. Uh, this is in relationship to his father's abuse of a young boy back in the 1970s. So sometime before 1977, Frank Houston, who was Brian Houston's father and also a pastor in the uh, Assemblies of God Church and with the Hillsong Movement, um, he was he, he, he abused a child. And uh, as we understand the story... Uh, when Brian Houston found out about it, he was about 45 years old at the time, and he claims that uh, the moment he found out about it, that and con- he, he then went to his father, he confronted his father, uh, confirmed that it had happened. He fired his father on the spot because he was his father's employer oh, at that good. time. Yeah, that's good. Um, he reported to the National Executive of the Assemblies of God and to the uh, board of the Sydney Christian Life Centre. He did not inform the police, even though it, you know we all know it became very public knowledge very very fast, because the victim pled with him not to inform the police. Mm. Now, th- it, this so this is, is an I... interesting one. Yeah. Okay, yeah. So this is an interesting one, and of course this was back before, as I understand it. You can correct me on this, Darren. This was before mandatory reporting was a thing. That's right. That's right. Um, now, there's been a two-year investigation by the Office of the Director of Public Prosecutions and they have decided that Brian Houston was lying and they're going to have him up on criminal charges for concealing this information for a lot longer than what it is claimed that he did. He claims that he acted instantly, in, in, in which case he acted appropriately, but they're claiming that he knew about it for a very, very long time. Well, that's um that's interesting, and um, yeah, I guess going to let the courts do their their work. But this has been an investigation now for a very long time. It came up in the Royal Commission, which of course um highlighted a lot of abuse happening in institutional settings, um all sorts, not just religious, but all sorts of institutional settings, and they're still going through the courts right now. Um, so, Darren, just just if I can jump in for a second here and ask you a couple of questions, because children is your area of expertise. You've been in children's ministry your entire life, and so this is something that you're probably more on top of than just about any other minister that I know of. When you have a situation like this that took place in the 1970s, what was the culture back then? Was that a culture in which something like this would typically be reported or typically covered up. What would we expect if Brian Houston had known about it? Yeah, well, back then in the 1970s, and I grew up in the... I was a kid myself yes, in the right. 70s. we were. 
and, they were. and looking back on growing up, there were people abused I didn't even know about were abused that's come to light now um, in my home church institution. So that's all very um, confronting. But back then it was covered up. Um, no one talked about it. it. Abuse anywhere was not talked about. No one, any institution did not talk about their the sexual abuse stories that were coming out. Not, and to, not to the police, not to anybody. That's right. No one went to the police. It was all kept in-house and um, sorted out. To, didn't want to embarrass the institution. So so you sorted out in-house and got on with it. So this was a really, really bad culture then that created an environment in which people could continue to abuse. Now, there's this, there's this one instance uh, where Frank Houston did abuse this child and admitted to abusing this child. When somebody in power and authority and in ministry like that abuses a child once, is it typically a one-off well, situation? From, from my work in, and I spent six years working in traveling churches and training in this area in child protection and, um, yeah, um, safe churches, and generally it's not once. If, if they're that way inclined, there's often more than one. If it's only one-off, it's often rare. It's, it's often more than one victim and good... Um, Pedophiles, how to call them, have up to 100 victims. Effective pedophiles, maybe we should say. Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> and and, and the, the problem is that often they groom not just the victim but the victim's family and the entire organisation and they do that before they abuse. And so you say, oh, th- this is a really upright pastor, a really lovely person, a, a lovely elder. They wouldn't dare do that. They're one of our... Golden boys, and so you. And back you, in the seventies and eighties, you know, because we saw them as being the golden boys. Sorry for jumping in there, but because we saw them that way, when it did come to light that something had happened, we would think, well, this was surely just a, a one-off mistake, and they'll never do that again. And so we just move them somewhere else. Or we often say the victim was lying, and um, yeah, we often blame the victim and say, no, that person wouldn't do it. The victim's lying, and that's the first thing that um, often perpetrators say: the victim is lying, and don't believe the story. And and that's where it um really gets harrowing for the victim and their families when they know this happened. So, um yeah, I feel I would feel sorry in some ways for Brian, but let let the courts process happen and see what occurs. Yes, and you know you can have some sympathy from one perspective because it's like you know people lived according to the culture they lived, and and on the other perspective, it was a criminal offence. You know, and it must have been so hard for him to go and confront his father. I mean, who oh. wants to go and confront your father on that stuff? Yikes. I can't even begin to imagine. But, yeah, let's let's find out. As, as we say, this is alleged at this stage. That's right. It, it's, it, it, the word is alleged. We need to, That's right. We need to keep to that and let the courts do their process. Yes. But let's follow this through as it um, proceeds through the courts. And that's what we need to be doing as Christians. We need to be not shying away and we need to, whenever something is like this, we need to take it through the courts, we need to uh, take it through the investigation and we need to dig in and find out as much as we can so that justice can be done. Very quickly before we finish off, uh, Joe Biden has just nominated the next ambassador for religious freedom and I'm quite interested in this one. Uh, this person, uh, this position was created back in 1998 by the International Religious Freedom Act. The nominee is Rashad Hussain. Uh, he's the first Muslim to ever be nominated to a position of uh, ambassador for Religious Freedom. And the thing that I like about this is that religious liberty protections exist for minorities, not for majorities. Majorities don't need protection. They are protected by the simple reality of being a majority. 
And in the past, we have nominated people from majorities to be in this position, which is not really effective. I think that putting somebody here who, who comes from a minority religion is a much better idea because they'll have a much better understanding of infringements on religious liberty than somebody who is from a majority religion. I think you're spot on. So yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm quite interested in this one. And, you know, we look at, uh, we look at Islam. You know, the, our big issues in religious liberty at the moment are really focusing around uh, the issues of same-sex marriage, gender ide- ideology, these kinds of issues, um, LGBT plus issues and so forth, and how those, how those freedoms um, and freedoms from discrimination and so forth are enforced within, you know, the country and uh, having an Islamic person there, he's obviously going to have sympathies with and actually be able to understand people of faith who don't affirm same-sex marriage or don't affirm you know, the gender ideology that we have that is predominant in our world today. You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM, positively different. Joining us on the phone this morning uh, to talk about something really, really topical and interesting is Dr. Paul Wood. Uh, Dr. Paul Wood, welcome to the show. Thank you, Laura. Now, Dr. Paul Wood is our, uh, I guess, our resident uh, uh, MD here on the Breakfast Show on Faith FM. And, uh, yeah, we're up here in Newcastle, which has just been thrown down into lockdown along with a whole bunch of other places in New South Wales. And, of course, yeah, around Australia, a whole bunch of areas in lockdown. COVID is running rampant, but you've come across some very interesting research about the relationship between diet and COVID and COVID severity. So this is some new research that is just coming out. I'm wondering whether you can sort of uh, walk us through what you've actually found here. Yeah, sure. Well, this is a interesting paper that came out in late June looking at the correlation between different dietary patterns and COVID severity. And uh, what they actually did was, this is actually last year when they did this, this study, um, only got published uh, this year, but they actually tracked... Uh, close to 3,000 healthcare workers from six different countries. So looking at France, Germany, Italy, Spain, UK, USA, where obviously they had um, fairly significant outbreaks there. And they looked at healthcare workers who, ha- who are basically on the front lines, who are having significant exposure to um, COVID-19 patients. And then what they did was they looked at their different dietary patterns and looked at the risk of, of severity of, of COVID. What they found was that there was a 73% lower risk of moderate to severe COVID in those participants who followed more plant-based um, diets. That's, that's, a, that's, a really, that's a big number. 73% mm. is a very big number right there. Absolutely, absolutely. And they looked at a spectrum of diets. So they also uh, then looked at well, what about if we include, say, um, plant-based diets and pescatarian diets. So pescatarian diets are basically plant-based diets but also include some fish as well. What they found there was there's a 59% low risk of, of moderate to severe COVID when you combine those two groups. So I guess the bottom line seems to be that the more plant-based diet there was, the, the, the greater protection from moderate to severe COVID. So there's almost like, like, a, uh, like a scale there then. Could we say there's a scale from a high meat diet to a low meat diet to a no meat diet? And the correct. further you go up that scale, the better your chances are of getting uh, low to moderate COVID. Yes. Now, in public health circles, there's this saying that says that causation or association doesn't prove causation. So I guess these are associations which, you know, warrant better studies, but they're interesting nonetheless. There's another interesting finding in this study too, which actually looked at um, 
high protein, low carb diet. Yeah, but before and, you go there, though, before you go there, Paul, mm-hmm. um, it, you know, causation and uh, you know, when we look at that whole um, argument that does come up, and of course they haven't proven the link yet. But surely we all know and have known for decades that a plant-based diet is going to give you better health outcomes across the board. You know, it, it would it would surely follow that there is a connection between these two. Yeah, that, it makes good sense. Well, I mean, I guess we look at the biological possibility behind it. Um, there's lots of antioxidants and things like vitamin C and other nutrients in those foods that we do know play a role in terms of enhancing immunity. So. It, it kind of makes sense. So I think it's the kind of thing where um, even though, you know, further studies are required because, you know, scientists are fairly cautious individuals, um, it certainly makes good sense to make sure you get those two, those two sort of the and five sort of vegetables into that. So, Paul, I want to move on. I want to talk about vaccinations here. But looking at the figures that you've got here, what I see is they had, that people on a plant-based diet had a 73% uh, lower chance of getting moderate to severe COVID-19. Now, Mm -hmm. you might be able to correct me on this because I'm not a medical expert, but my understanding of the vaccine is that the vaccine doesn't necessarily stop you from getting COVID. It keeps you out of hospital because it stops you getting getting severe COVID. And... uh, the numbers that I'm seeing here, not as high as the, is the you know, 73%, not as high as the numbers that, that the response that you'll get from the vaccine or, you know, there's different, different vaccines that give different numbers, but still significantly high. What happens if you combine the two? Vaccine plus, plus a, uh, a plant-based diet. Yeah, look, I think that that's, that's a, an interesting course, which would be great to see some research on. I guess we... It's got a little bit of a hint what might play a role um, when you combine uh, lots of fruits and vegetables with, with a vaccination. And that was a, a study done back in 2010 that actually looked at um, 83 healthy volunteers between the age of 65 and 85 who were following a low fruit and vegetable diet. So basically, uh, less than equal to two, two serves of fruit and vegetables per day. And then they randomised the group so that, that um, half the group got actually up their, their intake to five portions of fruit and vegetables per day, um, and the other, the other half is stuck with the usual two serves per day. Tracked them over 16 weeks. Then at 12 weeks, they gave them the pneumococcal vaccine. And this is the vaccine that helps protect against pneumococcal pneumonia, a type, of, a type of bacterial pneumonia, which is quite common in, in older people. And uh, what they actually found was there's, there's, there was significant protection in terms of a greater antibody response when they, uh, in the group who had the five serves of fruit and vegetables, um, compared to the group who had the, the two serves of fruit and vegetables um, when they had that pneumococcal vaccine. So greater antibody response. So well, I guess while the research hasn't been done in relation to, to the COVID vaccine, it, it certainly makes you wonder. Um, and I, I actually had my, my first vaccine yesterday. Um, so I had my, my two pieces of oranges this morning, my two serves of oranges this morning. And um, you know, while the research isn't specifically for COVID vaccines, I think there's some good reason to think that a healthy dietary passing high in fruits and vegetables is going to enhance your immune response when it comes to vaccination. Yeah, that's that's fascinating stuff right there because um, now this uh, Pneumovax uh, 2 vaccina- vaccination that you were talking about right here, uh, is this the same kind of, the same family of vaccinations as the COVID vaccinations are in? No, different, different kind of 
family. So I, I guess with the COVID vaccines, we've got a few different families in that, in that, in that family now, um, two of which are quite novel. Um, one of which is on the way, the Novavax, which is sort of similar to the, the current um, vaccines that we have. Right. Okay, so when you talk about them being um, um, quite novel, that mm. uh, I guess there's, there's some of the language that sort of gets some people a little bit scared about these vaccines. They think, well, it's, it's novel and we haven't tried it before. Are we just uh, the guinea pigs right here? Yeah, look, it's, I mean, I think certainly in the short-term data, we've got some really extensive amount of data um, looking at their, their safety profile. So from... I've been a GP now for 20 years, but you know when we look at the vaccines that have been have come out in the in the last few years, um, a lot of these vaccines don't have as much data as what we have with these these COVID vaccines. Because literally, literally, you know, millions of people have now had these vaccines. So, and they're some of the most scrutinised vaccines. And you know, while while you can't look anybody in the eye and say these vaccines are 100% safe, and you can't say that with any vaccine, I think we have a fairly clear idea what their safety profile is. So. You know, take the AstraZeneca vaccine, for, for example, um, the risk of clotting syndrome we probably wouldn't have been aware of um, if these vaccines had been sort of rolled out very gradually. But since we've had literally millions of people being vaccinated with these vaccines, we, we, we know side effects which otherwise might take 10 years to find out if we've been rolling out another vaccine um, to a lesser extent. Fascinating stuff. Uh, Dr. Paul Wood, um is there okay? So obviously, you know the COVID, um, the, the the COVID virus, you know, goes in through our respiratory tract and all that kind of stuff. That's why they tickle our brain when they, you know, do a test for it to find out whether it's up inside of our nose and and that kind of thing. Just generally speaking, does diet affect um, respiratory tract infections and these kinds of infections? You know, not necessarily COVID specifically, but do we have some? You know, because obviously research is very, very new on this very, very new virus. But do we have some good, solid data on similar viruses from the past and their relationship to diet? Yeah, sure. Yeah, we've had studies for a while looking at things like influenza, for example. Uh, one study, which, is, which we talked about a few months ago, which I might just highlight again, um, was looking at pregnant females. And we know that pregnant females who contract covid um, a much higher risk of complications from the, from the virus because the immune system is a bit more suppressed um, within pregnant. But in this study, they, they tracked or looked at a 1,000 um, pregnant females and found that those who were in the highest or the top 25% when it came to pregnant reasonable consumption actually had a significantly lower risk um, of contracting upper respiratory tract infections, which produce a upper respiratory tract infection. Um, and what they found was that when they, when they tracked them over, over five months, was actually a 39% lower risk in those in the top 25% risk, uh, in the top 25% intake, I should say, in relation to preventable intake. So, yeah, again, lots of good reasons to think why eating those kind of foods would protect against um, viruses. Um, and I think certainly with the COVID pandemic, um, I, would, I would look at it as many options as possible to enhance my immunity. Yeah, and I, and I sort of, uh, you know, I saw a really good illustration the other day of the uh, you know the Swiss cheese model of uh, dealing with COVID, where you you take a piece of Swiss cheese and you cut it into slices, and of course the Swiss cheese has holes in it, and the virus can get through those holes through various slices. But when you put all those slices together, 
then of course there's nowhere for it to get through. And you know they talked about all the different things that were being done, and and you know masks were one slice, and and social distancing was another slice, and lockdowns were another slice, and vaccinations were another slice, and etc. 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 It seems to me that building a good immune system right here, and having and building that through having a good solid diet, is a very solid slice of that. Uh, COVID protection scheme. Absolutely. And look, it's probably been understated uh, while I think in terms of its value. Um, certainly with the last, I guess, wave of the pandemic, we were seeing people, um, people with diabetes, heart disease, lifestyle-related problems, I guess, getting get particularly hard by, by COVID. Um, so it does seem to make good sense that, you know, focus on those kind of things that do enhance immunity, uh, given, as you say, giving yourself an extra layer of, of protection. Yeah, absolutely. Now, with uh, just 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 briefly, just to finish off, because we've talked a lot about diet here and, and, and the relationship that diet has to uh, protecting ourselves against COVID. What about exercise? What about getting out? What about getting fresh air? You know, we've got this lockdown happening, which you know it's fairly limited as to what we can do. But as far as I can see, there's no rule about going for a walk somewhere, enjoying some fresh air, having some mask-free time. What are your thoughts there? Yeah, look, definitely, Lyle. Some really good research in relation to exercise and enhanced immunity, and and not just exercise too, but sleep. Um, we've, we've actually got research too that shows that getting a good night's sleep at night actually enhances um, immunity, but also um, enhances antibody response to vaccination as well. So that's another thing I did last night was make sure I had a good night's sleep um, to be sure that I get my maximum response to my the vaccine I had yesterday. So, yeah, all those different lifestyle things do play a role um, in terms of enhancing immunity. And I think also dialing down the stress response, which obviously a lot of people at the moment are feeling a bit stressed about. So you do those things that enhance immunity, but also help to wind that stress back and um, I guess put that enjoyment back into life. Fantastic stuff. Dr. Paul Wood, thank you so much for joining us here on uh, Faith FM this morning. Um, this has been a very topical discussion, and we... Um, we, we just, we just, yeah, thank you for joining us to talk about lifestyle and just the level of impact that lifestyle can have during these COVID times. Thanks for being a part of the Faith FM family. Join our community on Facebook or get in touch at 1-800-FAITH-FM.